All right. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Everybody glad to be here today? All right. Hey, why don't you get your Bibles and uh, open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to give a quick little announcement here uh, that we're going to Israel uh, next year. Uh, you may have gotten here early enough in the service, you saw uh, the little video we had on that, but I would love for you to go to Israel with me in 2019. I mean, we're going to study uh, today a passage about the birth of Jesus, but how cool would it be if you could actually be there uh, where these events took place, or you could sail on the Sea of Galilee, or you could walk uh, in, the, in the area of Capernaum where Jesus did many of his miracles or, or walk down the Via Della Rosa where Jesus carried the cross or stand at the empty tomb. All those things we're going to do in 2019. So if you're thinking, well, you know, I would really like to do that sometime. Maybe one day I'm going to do that. Well, that one day is now, okay? So we want you to come, come on, come with us. It's going to be a wonderful, really life-changing time. And we're going to study the life of Christ as we go. And uh, I think this is my seventh or eighth time now uh, to lead a team. And so we're going to have a wonderful time together. So come with us. January 9th is the uh, info meeting. So check it out, okay? Uh, Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, today. And we're going to be studying really a, uh, a, a, an event uh, that happened as a part of the birth of Jesus, okay? But before we dive into that, I, I just want to post a big warning sign on the front of it. Because there are some dangers that can keep you from really understanding and, and, and getting the message I'm going to try to get across to you today. There's some warnings that I need to give you. The first danger is this, that you can, as I read this passage, and we kind of get into it, you can just kind of dismiss this story as a, uh, a Christian myth or legend or fable, okay, that, that didn't really ever happen. All right, if you go to the grocery store today and you're at the checkout counter, uh, there, is, there are magazines all over that area with, with the picture of Jesus on the front of them. And if you dive into them, they're all basically saying roughly the same thing, that, you know, this whole story, the, the, the nativity, the birth of Jesus, that never really happened, all right? That's, that's all fable, it's myth, it's made up over hundreds, maybe thousands of years. I saw a, a billboard of uh, that said uh, on the billboard, it said, skip church, it's all fake news, and it had a picture of the nativity, okay? So the, the reoccurring theme is that, well, you know, this stuff, it's in the Bible, but of course, we can't believe that, and it didn't really happen, but, and you may even thought that, well, maybe, maybe it is just stuff that was made up over years and years and years, but if you hold to that view, you have to ignore some simple facts. The first fact you have to ignore is that this story is rooted in history, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, which we're not studying today, but if you go back and look, it tells the exact place that this happened, time that it happened, who was ruling, what were the circumstances, global political circumstances around that. Legends don't, aren't tagged down with historical verifiable facts out of history. In fact, the Gospel of Luke was written by a man named Luke who was writing an historical account, a chronological historical account of the life of Jesus. And so uh, you have to ignore the historicity of these events. Secondly, you have to ignore uh, the fact that these events were lifted out of eyewitness testimony. When uh, Luke was writing this down, he actually interviewed people that were actually there. 
This is eyewitness testimony of the events that actually took place. Luke was like an embedded reporter going up and interviewing people and recording what he believed to be verifiable and accurate. And then, of course, lastly, you have to ignore the fact that, that the Gospel of Luke was written somewhere between 60 to 62 A.D. That's about 30 years after the death of Jesus. Legends take hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years to develop and morph and change, certainly well beyond the lifespan of the people that actually experienced that. This happened within the lifespan of those that actually experienced these events. And, and the early church, that is the next generation of leaders, certainly verified that these were reliable accounts. And so what I'm just saying is this, when we get to the story, don't dismiss it as a bunch of uh, a fable. The, this is an actual event and there's a reason why God recorded it for us. The second great danger is, is this, that you're just too familiar with the story. And that may be most of us in the room. I mean, most of you, you've grown up in church your whole life. You've, you've gone through multiple Christmases and you've heard this story over and over and over. And you've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That I just heard this so many times that now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, okay, I got it. Shepherds, you know, angels, yawn, nod. I got it. I've heard this before. But nothing moves you. Nothing really, it doesn't really change you on the inside because you've heard it before. But listen, I, I want you to try to set that aside for a minute and receive the message of this story that is truly life-changing. Okay? Can you do that? Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 8. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. This is the Word of God. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for, I, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Stop right there for just a minute. This story is really a story about God's unexpected grace. It's about God's unexpected grace. This story is given to us to deconstruct the notion that God is only for those who are good. That God's only for those that are nice, that those that are moral, that those that have their act together, that, go, that, <clears throat> that always make the right choices, that always do the right things, that always have the perfect family. That's who God's for. That's who God really loves. That's who God moves toward. But the mess up and the screw ups and the people that fail, that's, God's not really for them. God's for these good people. He's not for the bad people. God's for the people that have their act together, not for those who don't have their act together. And this story is meant to smash that view into pieces, to destroy and deconstruct that idea. In fact, this story is actually here for those of us that are mess-ups. Those of us that have failures, that have, have skeletons in our past and blots in our history and, 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 and moral failures and all the like, that this story is for us because it really tells us the opposite. It tells us that, that God is for all of us. 
let me put it to you this way, that God's grace flows toward those who need him the most. That's what this story is about. That God's grace flows to those who need him the most. And that's why we're reading this story. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, if you look at the first verse 8, uh, it starts off talking about shepherds. You may want to circle the word shepherds there because I'm going to talk about shepherds in just a minute. You know, we have kind of a nostalgic uh, view of shepherds. You may think, oh, shepherds, how cute they are, how sweet they are. Here they are with their sheep, you know, and the little nativity scene, you know. The, the shepherds, we love shepherds. When my kids were little, we used to have the, the neighborhood kids of the cul-de-sac come over and we reenact, we would reenact the, the nativity story, all right? And so all the, all the little boys love to be the shepherds, right? Because they could put on the bathrobe, you know, put a towel on their head and with a belt you know, around the top of it. And then they would, they would like to be shepherds because they could get sticks out of the backyard and then they would carry around their stick, you know, like a shepherd's staff, right? And then they would uh, begin to beat each other, you know, of course, with the sticks, right? Or swords, you know, the staffs turned into swords, something like that. So they would love, you know, we love the shepherds. They're so nostalgic, so sweet, so cute, whatever. But if I could transport, teleport you back to this day, you would understand that shepherds are shady, all right? Shepherds are sketchy people. Uh, shepherds were not, on the social ladder, shepherds were on the very, very bottom. They were bottom. You would not want to hang out with shepherds. If, if, it, if it got dark, you didn't want to hang out with shepherds, right? I mean, even still today, you go to Israel with me, uh, we'll see some Bedouin shepherds. You're going, well, I'm not sure I want to hang out with them, all right? I mean, they're just they're shady people. They were, they were known as, or they're kind of seen as these unskilled, uneducated workers. I mean, if you're, like, if you're an adult and you're a shepherd, your life is an epic fail. Like, really? That's the only thing you can do is sit around and watch sheep? That's all you can do? Uh, because of their shady character, many shepherds' testimony were not even allowed in court. I mean, no, nobody would have a shepherd over to their house and, and, unless they're afraid that something was going to get lifted, all right? They, it, they, shepherds were even considered unclean spiritually because they dealt with dead animals and, and the like. And so they, they were just seen as dirty, earthy, shady, nomadic uh, people that were outsiders, I mean, really, in every possible way, they were pushed out. I mean, think about a shepherd. He spent most of his time out in the fields, and he would look in at the villages and the, night, the lights in the village at night. They were physically, socially, spiritually outside, outcasts. They were the nobodies. Nobody really cared that much about shepherds. He said, wait a minute, Craig, wasn't David a shepherd? One mo yeah, 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 that's true. But they were outsiders, <laughs> outcast. And so that's why it's so shocking and so unexpected that when God wants to declare the birth of his son, he does it to these people. I mean, why, why not to a king or a leader? Why, why not certainly to those, uh, maybe the high priest would be a great guy to announce this to, right? I mean, he's supposed to, have, he's supposed to know the prophecies and all. I mean, isn't this the kind of person you would want to hear the angelic declaration of the birth of Christ? Not to these low-life shepherds. Really? Honestly? That's so unexpected. And why is that? Why does God do that? Why are they the first to hear? Here's the reason why. There is a reason for it. Because God is making a statement. And he's saying that my grace flows toward those who need it the most. My grace does not just flow to those that have their act together, those that know their Bible, that know that, that live the perfect life. My grace flows toward, my heart moves toward, my, 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 my attention is given to the people 
that are on the outside, that have mess ups, that, that feel pushed out, that feel like failures, that feel like they're not good enough, that are, are tormented over and over in their minds with all the things that they've done, that's who God's heart moves toward. God's grace flows toward those who need him the most. You know, Paul Tripp, in his book on the Advent, the author, writer, Paul Tripp, he said this, one of the primary purposes of the incarnation of Jesus is to humble each and every one of us. Let me say it this way, only when you accept the very, very bad news of Jesus' birth will you then be excited about its very, very good news. You see, good news is only good news to those who need it, right? I mean, if, if, uh, if, if you're up to your eyeballs in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and I come to you and I say, hey, I got some good news. I'm going to just pay off all your debt. I mean, it's going to be gone, all your debt. I mean, that would be good news, right? That would be like incredible news. But if you don't have any debt, you're like, okay, well, that's cool, but it doesn't really do, do that much for me. Or if you're like, you're sick, and I say, man, I got, this, I got this cure for this disease, and it's, it's going to save your life. I mean, that would be like incredibly good news, right? But, but if you're not sick, they're like, well, that's cool information. I'm sure that's going to be nice for some people, but that doesn't really move me or affect me in any way. Good news is only good news for those who need it the most. And really, these shepherds were the ones that needed good news because they knew that they were outsiders. They knew they were second class. They knew that nobody cared about them. They knew that they were pushed out, and they didn't even think, thought God pushed them away. And it was good news to know that God loves them, that God cares for them, that there's a place for them in his kingdom. And listen, if you're here today and you go, man, I, just, I do feel like a failure many times. I do feel like an outsider. In fact, just being in church right now really kind of makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm around all these perfect church people that have all their act together, which we all know is not true, right? But, but we feel that way. But God's grace is for you. God came for you. Jesus came. Christmas is because of you. I think our greatest problem is not um, that we're overwhelmed with our need. In fact, quite the opposite. Most of us in this room our greatest problem is that we don't fully realize our need. The, the, the story of Christmas doesn't excite us, isn't thrilling anymore because we've forgotten how badly we do need God in our life. In the same article, Paul Tripp goes on to say that there are five words that describe our spiritual condition, the spirit condition of every person. The first word is the word separation. He said that we're separated from God, that God created you to know him and walk with him and love him and fulfill his plan for your life. And because of your sin, you are separated from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says the arm of the Lord is not too short that it cannot save, uh, reach, or, or the, the ear of the Lord that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God. And that is the, that is the spiritual condition of all people, cut off, separated from your heavenly father who created you and to know him. Because of that separation, he said the second word is, is inability, that we are unable then, because we're separated from God, we're unable to think as we should think, to act as we should act, to love as we should love, to live as we should live. I mean, you ever figure out, ask yourself the question, why do I keep doing that? Why am I so drawn to that sin? Why can I not break this habit? Why can I not be a better person? Why can I just stir it up in myself to be, to get over this? I mean, have you ever said that to somebody? Well, just get your act together, man. All right, why can't we do that? Because we are unable 
to do it. We are unable to change because we're separated from God. And so the third word he says is delusion. We have given into a delusion that maybe, maybe we're not sinful and maybe we're not that bad and that maybe there isn't a God and maybe it is all fake news and maybe I'm okay if I just, if, as long as I don't hurt somebody else, I can live my life as I want to and it'll all be okay. And, and we buy into a delusion that God really isn't God, that truth really isn't truth, that I really won't be held accountable. And we're blinded. The Bible says in Second uh, Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ. Blinded to our own sinfulness. I had a friend of mine that uh, uh, came to Christ as an adult. He uh, was very, very successful in his career and yet had an emptiness in his heart and realized he needed Christ uh, through some uh, really cool circumstances, heard the gospel on Easter Sunday, began to pursue who Jesus is, came to faith in Jesus Christ and called up his mom and dad to tell them that he is now a follower of Jesus. And they said, you're not a sinful person. You don't need that. You're a good person. You don't need that. See, sometimes we tell ourselves that. Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm perfect, but who's perfect, right? But, but I'm not like that dude over there. I'm not that bad. See, that's the delusion, right? That we feel like we're okay when we're not okay. I have people tell me that all the time. Oh, pastor, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. Or I'll hear somebody say, well, he's a good person. Yeah, well, he's good according to your standard, but not according to God's standard of perfection. He's not that. And Jesus said, unless you're perfect, you can't enter the kingdom. And so we have this delusion that we're really okay when we're really not okay. We're cut off. We're separated from God. We're unable to change it. We have this delusion. And then he goes on to say, and, and there, the third, fourth word is judgment. We're, we're headed toward a judgment time where we're going to give an answer for our life. And the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And then ultimately hopeless is the last word. We're hopeless. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it says that uh, without Christ, you are without hope and without God in the world. Wow, that's such a profound, heavy statement. And the Bible says that this is the condition of every person. And this is why Christ came. It's really a humbling thing. Jesus told the story about two men that went to, to church, to the synagogue, to, I'm mean, sorry, to the temple. And uh, one was very religious and one was not religious. And the, and the religious guy, when he stands there, he says, God, he looks up to heaven. He says, God, I, I thank you that I'm, I am who I am and that I give and I know my Bible and I, I tithe and I, I, I do all these great moral things. Surely you're proud of me, right? And then the other guy is literally on his knees, cannot look to heaven, hitting his chest. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, of those two, the one that humbled himself is the one that left right with God. See, I, I believe in, in all people can be broken out, out into those two categories. There are those that don't think they need God. Therefore, the coming of Christ is ho-hum, and then there are those that desperately need him. That desperately need to know that God can forgive me and God can change me and I can be different and, 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 and God can stop this direction of my life that's going the wrong way. And, and that person, that's the one that God's grace moves toward. That's the one that God changes. Because God's grace moves toward those 
who need him the most. So the question is, which one are you? Which one are you? This story starts off with shepherds that desperately need the work of God. Let me just say this. You will never experience, listen to me, this is an important statement. You will never experience the grace of God until you first admit your need for the grace of God. The Bible says multiple times in the scripture, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's opposing those that think they got their act They don't need that. They're not bad. They, they, they can do it on their own. God opposes that person. But Jesus came for those that know that they need a savior. So these shepherds, they realized, they, they, it was good news because they, they realized that they needed God in their life. Now look at what it says in verse 10. It says, an angel appears to them. And the glory of the Lord shone, shone around them. And look at verse 10. And he said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Would you circle the word good news there? That, that is the same word for the word gospel, right? The gospel is good news. And so he said, I, I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of great joy. You know, they had a lot of bad news, and now God was bringing them some good news. And it says that this good news uh, brings joy. This br good news brings hope. This good news brings life, right? It's good news. And he said it's for all people. The wonderful thing about the, the story of the birth of Christ and the gospel is it's for everybody. It's for black and white. It is for rich and it is for poor. It is for uh, the up and uh, mo uply mobile and the down and out. It is for every language, every socioeconomic group, every tribe, every person. Because all of us, every person in, on, on planet earth has the same problem that we're separated from God and desperately need the same solution. And he, so he said this gospel is for all people. And he said, what is this good news that brings joy? It is to all people. Look at it just one more time. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now I want you to put a little box around the word Savior. A Savior who is Christ uh, the Lord. This is similar to what the angel told Joseph, uh, which we talked about last week, when he said, you shall name his, him Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. And he goes on to say, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Jehovah saves. Uh, he will save his people from their sins. A savior who is Christ the Lord. Save, save, save. All right. So, so the purpose for Christ's coming was to save. So what does that mean exactly? Well, in one sense, what, what, if I were to ask, what does that mean exactly? Some of you would say, well, of course, Craig, that means that he saves us from uh, hell, right? He saves us from divine judgment. And there is a sense, obviously, that Christ's coming was to provide forgiveness for our sins so that we could be clean and right with God and spend eternity with him in heaven to save us from the penalty of our sin. But listen, that is not all that that word Savior means. If you limit the coming of Christ just as simply the forgiveness of sin, then you're missing a broader and bigger picture of what it means to have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not only does it mean, listen to me, not only does it mean that, that Christ came to save you from the penalty of your sin, 
But it also means that Christ came to save you from the power that sin has on your life. Now, there's a difference because there are a lot of Christians that go through, they say, well, I sin and then I ask for forgiveness and then I sin again and I ask forgiveness and I sin again and I ask forgiveness. And you're on this gerbil wheel going around and around and around of sin, forgive, sin, forgive, sin, forgive, sin, forgive, but there's no change. Right? I'm still going to get up on Thursday and do the same thing I did last Thursday because there's been no long-lasting, dramatic change in my life. I would say that's, that's a high percentage of people that attend church. They say, man, well, I, I, I ask Christ to forgive me, and, and so I'm going to try harder, and, and, and yet I continue to, to get in the same ruts, sin ruts that I have in my life, and there's no really change in the direction of my life. Christ came to be Jehovah saves, Jesus, Jehovah saves, the same root word of the word Joshua. Remember Joshua in the Old Testament? He was a warrior, right? He was a conqueror. He was a battle-tested leader, right? So Jesus came, comes to not only save you from the penalty of your sin, that is to forgive you, but he also comes to, to free you from the power and the grip that sin has on your life. That means you can actually change. That God can, can do some kind of work inside of you to change who you are substantially on the inside and you can become a different person. If any man is in Christ, he is a, somebody help me. He is a, somebody say it really loud. He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. That's what the gospel means. In fact, Paul is kind of unpacking this in Romans uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 12. He says this, do not let sin control the way you live. Uh, do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. And the question is, I would like to do that, but how can I do that, right? I, I, I don't want sin to control me, but yet I still lust. I, I, I don't want sin to control me, but I've still got this anger issue. I don't want sin to control me, but I still am selfish over here. How can I change. And that's why we need a savior. Because Christ came not to just forgive you and save you from the penalty of your sin, but he came to put his Holy Spirit within you and to change you on the inside so that your wants become like his wants and your thoughts become like his thoughts and your desires become like his desires. And all of a sudden people start to look at you and you become what the scripture calls being transformed into the likeness of his son. That's why he came. He came to be a savior, to change you. You say, Craig, do you really believe that? I say, absolutely. You know why? Because when you come to church, all you get to look at is me. All right? Bless your heart. I'm so sorry. This is as good as it gets, people. But when I come to church, I get to look at you. And the cool thing, when I preach something like that, like I just did, when I make those kind of radical statements that Jesus changed life, I can look at you and you and you and you, and I can look at faces of people who have been dramatically changed by the life of Jesus. If we just had open mic, and I said, we're just going to put a mic right here, and we're just going to, I want you to stand up and tell how Jesus has changed your life, we would have a line ringing this auditorium because we have a Savior who has changed us. And because of him, God's grace has flowed into our life when we didn't deserve it. And that's good news. That's good news. 
So how do we respond to this good news? What do, we, what do we do as a result of this? Well, let's look at what the shepherds did. In the next three minutes, I'm going to land this plane, all right? So stay with me. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I bet that's true. But Mary treasured all these things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherd returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. What should we do? Listen, the first response to this message that God's grace flows to those who need it the most is that you need to turn to Jesus. It's obvious, but you need to turn to Jesus. In other words, that there needs to be, because of this message that God flows to those that are messed up and broken and that need restoration, that Jesus can actually change your life. And that's the good news of the gospel, that you need to turn from him. Now, no longer say, well, I got it together and I think I'm okay and, and I wouldn't want to ruin my reputation by humbling myself. No, you need to get to Jesus. That's what the shepherds did. They said they went with haste. They said, man, let's go. Let's just go into town. Let's do what nobody expects. Let's go find this baby. And listen, isn't it time that you turn to Christ? What's it going to take for you to turn to Christ? You know, uh, most of you probably watched the funeral of George W. Bush, uh, George, George 41, George H., and, uh, of course, there were multiple services over the course of several days. On Thursday, his final service was in Houston, and then the body was placed onto a train and, and uh, taken up to College Station, which I'm sure you are much aware of. And so on Thursday, I knew that this was going to happen, and, of course, I've got a daughter that lives at College Station, so I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to go down there. So I did. Got in the car, drove down to College Station. Took my daughter to, out to eat and spend some time with her. And then uh, I, I want to I go see this. So I, I put on my rain jacket. It was rainy and, and walked, parked a long way away and walked all the way out through the crowds of people. So I was standing right there, right outside of Kyle Field, right across where the train tracks were and where the street was, where it was going to stop. And I waited for about an hour and a half. And sure enough, here comes this train. It's slowly coming. You could kind of hear the whistle pretty far off, so that got everybody excited. Everybody's got their phones up, their iPads up, right, uh, recording the event. And uh, the train comes slowly, and then, it, you, then you see the cars, the engine comes, that blue engine, you know, with 4141 on it. And then, and then the other cars, and then you have the car with the, the plexiglass side where you could see the casket of the former president in there. And it's quiet. And all you could hear were the clinking and the clanging of the track as it was a solemn moment. And then it came to a stop. And then there was an incredible flyover. And then they began to take the body out on the other side and weaving it around to its final burial place. And as I was standing there, just kind of taking in the moment, thinking about the moment, what came to my mind is this. This is a man who is probably one of the wealthiest people, one of the most powerful people on the planet, most prominent man you could imagine. And yet, when you hear his story in his funeral service, they said that he came 
to an awareness that he needed Jesus Christ. And he humbled himself. And he received the same gospel that a poor man receives. See, the truth of the matter is, every one of us are coming to a point when our life is going to come to a stop on this planet. And how are you going to respond on that day? Are you going to say, well, you know, I was a little too proud to humble myself. You don't understand how much money I made or what my position is in my company or what. Do you think that that's going to matter at all when you stand before God? It's not. The only one thing is going to matter. And that is, did you humble yourself and allow the grace of God to flow to you? My friends, God's grace flows to those who need him the most. God's grace is right now ready to flow into your life. But you have to say, I need you. 